2: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
1: Good evening and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I'm delighted to be here tonight with Amir Srinivasan, who, among many other things, is a regular contributor to the London Review. Many of you will know her from her essays, including The Right to Sex, which has given the title to her new book. And Amir is going to read us a little bit of the coda
2: to that piece. Thanks so much, Alice. Um, So, the the coda, which is called The Politics of Desire, tries to respond to some of the many responses I I had to the original Right to Sex essay. And and the original essay takes as its occasion the 2014 um, uh, massacre by the so called incel Elliot Roger. And then it opens out onto larger questions about you know, the putative right to sex and also the political formation of uh, sexual and romantic desire. Three. After the original publication of my right to sex essay, one feminist tweeted, could we please stop discussing whether or not there is a right to sex? Of course there is not. There is a right not to be raped. Enough hand The end. As a small addendum, she added, The observation that the extent to which one gets what one wants in life, in any domain, is often largely a matter of luck and happenstance and privilege and characteristics you don't have control over, is about as banal as it gets. 4. There is no right to sex. But is it as banal as it gets to observe that what is ugliest about our social realities – racism, classism, ableism, heteronormativity – shapes whom we do and do not desire and love, and who does and does not desire and love us? Five, that would be news to the people of color and the working class, queer, and disabled people who have drawn a clear connection between the more obvious public dimensions of their oppression and the more hidden private mechanisms that enable and partly constitute it, including the mechanisms of the club, the dating app, the bedroom, the school dance. Six, I have a friend who explains that because she is black and despite being beautiful and otherwise popular, was simply off the table when it came to dating in her predominantly white prep school. Seven, it would also be news to the feminists who have long demanded that we see sex as we know it, not as some primordial pre-political given, but as an effective politics, all too easily and falsely naturalized. The task was to liberate sex from the distortions of oppression, not simply to divide it into the consensual, unproblematic, and non-consensual, problematic. Eight. Indeed, what is male sexual entitlement, The the false conviction that men have a right to sex, a right that they can coercively enforce, if not a paradigm of how politics shapes sexual desire? Can we position ourselves against male sexual entitlement to women's bodies in general and against the misogynistic fetishization of the hot blonde slut or sexy East Asian doll or the vulnerable child's body without opening ourselves to a political critique of sex? 9. To liberate sex from the distortions of oppression is not the same as just saying everyone can desire whatever or whomever they want. The first is a radical demand. The second is a liberal one. Like many liberal demands, the second is often fueled by an individualist suspicion of the coercive power of the community. If my desire must be disciplined, who will do the disciplining? And if my desire refuses to be disciplined, what will happen to me then? 10. I'm not saying such worries are ungrounded. It is not perverse to want to be left alone. 11. Except, properly understood, the radical demand that we liberate sex from the distortions of oppression is not about disciplining desire at all. When I wrote that desire can cut against what politics has chosen for us and choose for itself, I was not imagining a desire regulated by the demands of justice, but a desire set free from the binds of injustice. I am asking what might happen if we were to look at bodies, our own and others, and allow ourselves to feel admiration, appreciation, want, where politics tells us we should not. There is a kind of discipline here, in that it requires us to quiet the voices that have spoken to us since birth, the voices that tell us which bodies and ways of being in the world are worthy and which are unworthy. What is disciplined here isn't desire itself, but the political forces that presume to instruct it. 12. After my piece was published, a gay man wrote to me about his husband of 14 years, a large fat man, he explained, whom he loves deeply, and with whom he has a satisfying sex life. And yet he has, quote, had to work deliberately and consciously to let him be sexy, if that makes sense. He went on, quote, while we cannot alter what does and does not turn us on, We can, on the one hand, displace what might be getting in the way of erotic excitement, and on the other, teach ourselves to eroticize what is happening in front of us during sex. 13. Is this an act of discipline or of love?
1: Thank you very much. There is more in those 10 statements, comments, questions than we can possibly do justice to tonight. But one thing I particularly wanted to ask you about and which which connects to the transmission of the piece and to this huge response that you got and to the sense I think many people had that this started or picked up again a conversation that was no longer being had or perhaps wasn't being had in mainstream venues about desire, the politics of desire and there was a, a great sort of outpouring of commentary in the wake of the essay. The essay itself came some years after the events that inspired it and the coda again sometime afterwards. And throughout this, I think the incel phenomenon, for want of a better word, is has remained with us and has remained with us as perhaps an underused tool for examining desire. There's something very explicit in the incel individual's um, clarity in showing perhaps to us, who like to deny its existence, the the very strict sexual hierarchies that we live with every day. And would you like to speak a little bit about that process from 2014 through to the coda? (laughs) Sure. Um, So
2: I started writing the piece as a kind of meditation on Elliot Rogers' own kind of self-conception. So he wanted to present himself as someone who was sexually and romantically marginalized for um, unjust reasons, right? He thought uh, the fact that he was mixed race and the fact that he didn't conform to the kind of stereotypical um, ideals of of heteromasculinity, like this was the reason that he was uh, lonely. I mean, this is a bad diagnosis, just to be clear. Um, uh, At the very least, it's massively overdetermined because... Mm -hmm. Uh, Roger himself, and I don't think we should dwell particularly on him, but you know he um, was dripping in uh, misogyny, but also racism. So he was, he was uh, had very intense kind of anti-black racism. He was also. Bizarrely, kind of classist and obsessed with the the idea that he was descended from English aristocrats. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think his account of why he was sexually or romantically marginalized was was at all accurate. Um, but he, but the re, the general response to Roger um, just s- skipped over those claims quite neatly and just indicted him correctly as. Um, a particularly violent manifestation of male sexual entitlement. But no one really wanted to touch the idea that at least in principle, some people are sexually and romantically marginalized um, because of oppressive forces like racism and um, heteronormativity, classism and so on. And so what I tried to do in the essay was hold together these kind of two thoughts, these, these thoughts that sit sort of uncomfortably next to each other. On one hand, you know, there is no right to sex and no one, including incels, um, has a, a right to be sexually desired. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, what's ugliest in our politics often does shape who and what is desired. I mean, I, one thing to say about the specificities of the incel subcultural phenomenon is that they com- they tend to complain about, um, they make it sound as if their complaint is about sexual marginalization, right? Loneliness. Um, but it's not really. It's about the, the word you used, which is the word hierarchy, right? What they dislike um, really is their perceived place in a sexual hierarchy, which means that they don't have access to what they think that they're entitled to, um, which is, you know, women who are high on the hierarchy. They're not really um, interested in dismantling those hierarchies, which is what a kind of feminist politics um, should be interested in. And does offer them. Right, actually. right. So there is this kind of thought here that, you know, um, in so insofar as, you know, these incel, incel members of the kind of incel subculture are... Um, angry about the sexual hierarchy, they're almost one step towards a, you know, a feminist critique that would dismantle it. But in fact, they are actually deeply invested in the hierarchy and want to maintain it, especially when it comes to women. Mm. So they're not interested in the phenomenon of women who are um, uh, coded as sexually undesirable. They're not interested in sexual racism as it applies to women of colour, for example. They're very happy to fetishize East Asian women, um, to sexually marginalise black women, and so on.
1: Yes, and indeed one of the things that is so interesting about it and which comes out clearly in the book is the entitlement even from that position of perceived exclusion to articulate the very specific nature of their desire where it comes in this hierarchy where they see themselves belonging or ought to be um, rewarded. And I was very struck at the end of the coda there by your description of the the man who wrote to you after the essay came out mm-hmm. who said, "You know I have had to um, learn to desire what was happening sexually in front of me because of love because of a relationship and I think this is something that women, but many people know about in long term relationships it's something that we have um, that we are trained I suppose to do, and yet it is th- very threatening to some people the um the suggestion that you make in the book that we should interrogate mm. the nature of our own desires that they may not be
2: natural, mm. that they may even be
1: scarily plastic,
2: right I mean, so on one hand, I think there's um a good kind of political reason for people's resistance to recognize the kind of malleability or plasticity of desire um, so if you think about the history of i mean okay. One way of putting it is that this idea that um you know we just want what what we want and we that's not reversible or changeable i mean that's a kind of ver- it seems to many of us like just an axiom of sexual morality, but it's actually a very hard one truth and it's a it's um a claim for which generations of like gay and lesbian and feminist activists have to ha- have had to fight um to get widely recognized. And so the idea of, you know, the innateness of kind of sexual preference, the unmalleability of it is very, very important for a radical queer politics in one sense. Um, but I also think it has, has its limits. I mean, one of its limits is that I just don't think it captures like the everyday phenomenology of lots of people's relationship to desire, right? So the case of people in long-term relationships and the specific case of this man who wrote to me is is, is one example. Um, but I also think another example is that very history of, of of lots of queer people who have had one conception of what it is they want and then find their desire, as it were, like cutting against that conception. Um, and so it can be very threatening to think about uh, desire as something more plastic and malleable. But it was also something, by the way, that, of course, like feminists of the 70s were, were very uh, interested in.
1: Yes, and a lot of those discussions you pick up on on the book and explore very productively and I think in in what you were just saying we see the tension that runs through the book and can't be fully resolved in any book or you know as part of a larger social project that we have to absolutely secure the preferences and identities sexual identities of groups who have previously been excluded while at the same time allowing for this plurality and plasticity within the individual which would allow them to break free from some of the very narrow ways in which sexuality certainly in this country in the states um, among white people I think predominantly tends to be um, directed that there is one view of what's desirable and either we conform to it and seek it or we re- react against it. The existence of a desire that is free from that um, that construct is, is quite hard to imagine.
2: Mm. I mean, it's interesting uh, the way in which uh, gay men in this country and in the U.S. have sort of taken on some of these issues, in part because of the way in which um, an app like Grindr mm-hmm. sort of makes very explicit and almost like institutionalizes this, this, you know, the phenomenon specifically of kind of sexual racism on our screens. Um, So, you know, it's, for those who don't know, I mean, it's very conventional on Grinder for people to be very explicit in quite a liberating way about their sexual preferences. But that's not just about their preferred, you know, sexual position, um, or what kind of kinks they're into. It's also about what race people they are and aren't willing um, to engage with sexually or romantically. Um, and there is a kind of productive conversation going on among gay men. And I think it's interesting that But not surprising that that conversation is more productively had um, among gay men than among, like, the broad straight population. And I think it's just because, you know, for gay men still remember that their sex is a political thing. It's not just simply a natural thing that is always just condoned. Um, It's something that is shaped by politics. And that is also, like, um, itself, like, a hard-won political achievement.
1: Absolutely. And... We can also see the ways in which queer desire has, um, has articulated itself um, in contrast to some of the romantic norms mm-hmm. of heterosexual mainstream culture and in that I'm thinking specifically of the fact that among dating apps more often used by straight people there are often options that you can select around your sexual preferences that aren't made explicit, that will just Mm. feed into the algorithm. Mm. So you will only see certain people. And similarly, um, you speak very well about porn in the book and the way in which large porn sites, based on algorithms, not only learn from us, but train us. I wouldn't say they teach us, but they train us and they um, conform us. Um, And I think the conversations with your students have been a huge part of the thinking in this book. Is that right?
2: Yes. Um, some, in, in some cases, very explicitly. So there, so the, the essay on, on pornography is, is very much about, um, my, what it's like to watch my, my students, um, most of whom are, you know, in their late teens or early twenties, um, confront these very old school debates about pornography that were had among, uh, you know, among feminists in the 70s and the 80s, which in the kind of mainstream contemporary feminism we think of as being outdated and sort of somewhat mm. quaint. Um, I certainly didn't anticipate as a teacher that um, they were going to resonate, um, those, those texts were going to resonate with my students, but they, they really do. Well,
1: that's a fantastic moment in the book and a very striking one in one of the ways in which I think the book is deeply pedagogical. You, you are surprised by your students' readiness to embrace these discussions that we have been taught were outdated. You know, we we came after the sex wars, but also after sex positivity and certain forms of you know, super individualized um, sexual agency seem to have become entrenched. And it was no longer possible to talk about the difficulties of porn without seeming prudish, perhaps. Right. Um, and yet, for your students who have grown up with porn the ubiquity of porn, in a way, I think we didn't, they are really living with these questions. And so we shouldn't be at all surprised that they are thoughtful and engaged with them.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's right. So, it, you know, it, it took me like a few minutes, though, after I walked out of that first seminar to un, to, to try and sort of understand why it was that, you know, you know reading McKinnon and Dworkin specifically, with a kind of scathing critiques of pornography, and specific, and also what my students particularly responded to was the idea that you find in McKinnon and work and other anti porn feminists that pornography has this kind of pedagogical function that it um, it works as a sort of ideological training ground, and they were very taken taken by this. And when those arguments were first made in the seventies, they a lot of people um, just thought they were they were a bit silly, right? Because pornography wasn't you know, you'd have to go to the theater, you'd have to go to the video store and rent mm-hmm. a VHS, you'd have to like get a play- Playboy. It didn't have that same ubiquity. So it, it felt to lots of people, including lots of feminists, that anti-porn feminists were ascribing too much power to porn. And one of the things that my students make me think is that, well, in some sense, you can think of those anti porn feminists as just being prescient, right? Not that they literally anticipated internet porn, but there's a sense in which their arguments um, were sort of made for a future technological possibility. And I think one of the things that my students respond really strongly to is the idea that um, pornography on its face is supposed to open up a set of sexual possibilities, right? That's the mm-hmm. kind of standard sex positive way of thinking about it, that it widens one's sexual horizons, um, it, uh, and it makes one sort of sexually freer in that way. Uh, but they're very responsive to the thought that actually pornography often ends up closing down their own sense of what's actually possible, in part because of the kind of porn that they access, which is free porn, yes. it's mainstream porn, it's pirated porn, and so it follows a kind of very narrow script.
1: Yes, and porn that is often stolen from the makers or uh, taken from individuals without their consent, but I think your students are in a real bind because they don't have the means nor does society easily permit them to access porn that might offer these things to them, that might offer many different expressions of sexual desire and adults are to a large degree responsible for creating that culture and I think um, one of the things that comes out very strongly in the book is not that we have failed as a society to regulate porn and your students are very clear about that too the internet is too pervasive for us to hope to to ban things but I think what it sounds like they picked up on the their readings of Walking with you, Anna McKinnon, was the nuance that was already inherent there in some of those earlier discussions, and which we see in sex-positive feminists too, that you can't just say all porn bad, all sex rape. But in the social context in which we are engaging with other people over sexual desire, um, it's essential that we are given a real choice, and porn as it currently stands, is obviously working against choice. And so therefore, it's, I guess I would like to ask you, do you think the problem is not having enough porn? Mm. Or is the problem that porn actually stops us using our imagination? Mm. So it's cutting off, you know, porn can never be varied enough and anyhow the agency is taken from us, it's lazy. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a thought I flirt with at the end of that essay. I mean, I should also just say that, you know, for my students, um, they instinctively... Um, and also reflectively, um, you know, rebel against the idea of, of using legislation to control porn. Um, not only because of the um, the vastness and uncontrollability of the internet, but also just because um, they're very aware of the fact that attempts at legislation of this kind of, of against sex work um, invariably harms the women who. Um, Work in the sex work. And in fact, the creation of these free pirated sites like Pornhub most obviously um, have massively impacted uh, like the livelihoods of, of sex workers uh, and, and who work in, in, in porn in particular. Um, so then the question you're left with is sort of, well, what to do? The standard answer my students give um, is, you know well, we need better sex education, right? Mm. So we have this kind of, we have porn fulfilling this pedagogic function. We need a kind of counter pedagogic um, force. I, I think I, that's where I'm more skeptical than they are. Maybe because I'm a teacher, I'm more. <laughs> I'm, maybe I'm more aware of like the limits of what people do. Right, what one can teach. Right, there's also the question of who's going to do this teaching. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't some really excellent programs out there that try and teach porn literacy or try and develop alternative forms of pornography. There is a kind of structural issue, though, which is that you can't show people under 18 pornography. So you, if you're teaching porn literacy, you're trying to teach them how to read text that you can't give them. I mean, imagine trying to do that with The Great Gatsby, right? Like, you know, so it's like, this is how you read this text, but we're not going to actually re- read it in class. Um, but yeah, I, there is this idea that Andrea Dworkin has, which is just, and, and I'm you know, I'm sympathetic to, which is that, well, there's just something about the screen, right? Um, There's something about like the moving image on the screen. Um, It really does come to substitute in for the imagination. Um, and, And so maybe the answer in some sense isn't more and better pornography or at least, you know, that will never be a full answer because you might think that what we need is, you know, a kind of quieting of the onslaught of of the images. Um, so maybe full and better sex. Yeah. And
1: this question, which was on my mind at the beginning and which I like to come back to a little bit again, is about articulation because I think one of the things that has been striking in the mute phenomenon in. Um, Peggy Orenstein's book, Girls and Sex, which is clear in your book, in the conversations with your students, is that um, the problem is not so much that the sex, that sex is so much worse than it used to be, but we're hearing about how much worse it is. And that seems to me a necessary step on the way to articulating desire. Some of the young girls that you talked to in a school, I think at one point, are clearly very dissatisfied with the types of sexual encounter they are having and disgusted and disappointed, but they don't know what to do next because Mm -hmm. this is all that's available to them. So I suppose um, in some of our hysteria around young people's sex lives, we miss how how very much more conversation there is Mm. and how um, the influence of queer sexualities, and um of intersectional feminism is already provoking among young people a kind of conversation that wasn't possible Mm. 20 years ago
2: yeah I think that's definitely true so it is interesting um just seeing like the filtration of feminism right it's great feminism is back and that's a wonderful thing and it's really wonderful to see um young people coming in um with a kind of not just an interest in feminism but a kind of um identification with feminism as a political project and intellectual interest. I mean, at the same time, though, I will say that one thing that you find is um, often a very kind of um, binary understanding of what feminism is. Uh, So it's very often in a a kind of quite simple um, and simplistic sex positive mode. uh, And... And so, and what what ends up happening is that when you, and and sometimes what I'll have are students who are um, reluctant to read second wave feminists because they think of them as, uh, you know, outdated, but also kind of dangerous sometimes. Um, And then re-engaging those uh, those second wave theorists, including sex positive second wave theorists, like like Ellen Willis, Mm. um, is like really thrilling for them because it allows for a much like broader conversation um, about, you know, the politics of of sex um, than than I think they're used to having just, you know, on TikTok.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And um, the tensions that run through the book in which you articulate so helpfully um, include those questions around um, performativity, around students wanting the freedom presumably young people all people wanting the freedom to make mistakes to be messy to have desires that are um, considered socially unacceptable or less um, socially approved of and yet at the same time the individual contributing to a greater mass of um, sexual preference which as you say marginalizes people in ways that are all too real Um, we one of the things the book rightly points out is that we must be wary of universalist prescriptions in all of these cases. Um, but are there things in your reading of the, of the second wave particularly that seem to speak to a way forward in this moment? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: the in- intersectionality, for instance, the, the way you complicate the question of believe women mm. in the first Piece in the book, I think, is incredibly helpful.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I think one thing that you get when you return to kind of the great sort of feminist theories, theorists of the seventies and eighties, is is a kind of uncompromising commitment to like truth and complexity. Um, so, you know, I mean, so for someone like for someone like Angela Davis, right, um, a notion like believe women, um, or like I believe her, is never going to be a simple uh, issue, right? Because she is, you know, in Women, Race and Class, you know, she talks about, um, she takes in fact Shulamith Firestone to task for um reinscribing the, the myth of the black rapist, the, the the black male rapist. And, you know, Davis points out that, you know, the, the other side of that coin is the hypersexualized black woman who is um, sort of paradoxically uh, you know rendered unrapeable right and therefore more susceptible to rape um, and so if you're coming from that kind of um, a perspective which I think you should be then you can't you, something like believe women will always seem too kind of reductive and blunt right it's a it's a gesture of epistemic solidarity that we offer against a sort of background knowledge that women in general aren't um, in general aren't believed at least when they make accusations against certain classes of men uh, but it's not one that you know takes on board the very long history of um, you know false accusations being brought against men of color in places of white domination
1: Yes, and there is an appeal in it to the to society or to the state which um you complicate very nicely in your references to Title IX and other um, legal or pseudo-legal means of um, correcting these sexual paradigms, of which I think you're rightly suspicious, and um, the role of the carceral state Mm -hmm. in sexual politics, um, very clearly in the States, but I'm sure it applies elsewhere, um, is is essential to a contemporary reading of female design now, isn't Mm -hmm. it? On the other hand, um, I wonder in the complicating of some of these um, notions, do we risk losing any of the the broader imperatives? Mm. I believe women is complicated, but it also serves a very clear function. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I think generally when we do politics, we you know just need to anticipate a constantly changing landscape, right? So um, uh, of, of a, a slogan or of a particular political intervention might be right for a particular political moment, but then it might be the case that we quickly need to transcend it. And I think um, one thing that feminism, like, you know, all political movements um, and all left political movements it need, needs very hard to avoid is, is is a form of nostalgia right so even though i'm very interested in what we can take from you know the women's liberation movement um and other forms of historical feminisms you know i don't think what we need is to, like bring it bring it back um, and so yeah i mean i think part, part of like the pain of being um someone in, involved in a kind of Lifelong political project like feminism um, is the pain of having to like let go of something that to you know which which was a central rallying cry or a central tenet of, of one's politics when one finds um, that it's like no longer serving uh, its purpose or one uncovers that it was never actually serving you know the worst off women.
1: Yeah, bell hooks talks about the rhetoric of commonality. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And I think there's an intergenerational appeal um, that we have to be wary of as well as being um, able to to benefit from. Um, and I think that one of the reasons your book is so exciting, as well as being incredibly wise and thoughtful, um, is that the, the voices of the young are, are, are very clearly given equal weight mm. to voices from the past. Um, Shall we turn to some questions? Yes. I feel like now is the moment. I've got some here on my screen, I think, coming up, so bear with me. Okay. Okay, so this is from Anne, um, who says, I was fascinated by the chapter on the Coders' discussion of the impossibilities a prefigurative politics. I wonder if you could say more about that.
2: Yeah, well, I'm, um, so I'm delighted that Anne has already read the book. That makes me so happy. Um, so, I, in, uh, in the coda and elsewhere, I, um, I talk about this notion of kind of a, a prefigurative politics, right? So, a politics that tries to, in some small way and within certain kind of confined parameters, act out, you know, the kind of post-revolutionary world to come. And this notion of prefigurative politics was very important for women in the U.S. and the U.K., women's liberation movement. Um, So, you know, the idea was not simply to undertake various kinds of, uh, you know, political activism to hasten, um, you know, a a post-patriarchal world, but to actually kind of practice non-patriarchal forms of decision-making, um, community-making, f- uh, child-rearing, uh, you know, um, family and domestic life right now. And, uh, and a, a sort of extreme version of it is uh, separatism, mm-hmm. uh, where women um, would gather just, you know, would would refuse to kind of engage with, with men um, politically, but also interpersonally. Um, or lesbian separatism, political lesbianism, and what one one certainly understands that you know the pull of um, prefigurative politics, and you know the 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 emphasis on prefiguration is one of the kind of the most um, decisive, I think, point of departure for. The new left and mm-hmm. feminism, in particular, as opposed to the kind of old top-down, uh, you know, authoritarian left, which was really focused on like getting the job done, and then we would all be then we would all be equals. Um, and so I think your politics, to a certain extent, has to be prefigurative. Otherwise, you are just, um, you know, recreating that very thing uh, that you claim to be opposing. At the same time, I mean, the women in these kind of separatist uh, groups um, were charged with, you know, alienating non-movement women. Right. So sort of closing off the movement um, to everyone who wasn't just, you know, a purist radical um, and, and I think that charge is, is partially right. I think it's very hard, hard to have a truly mass movement that insists on a kind of personal purity. And that kind of pursuit of personal purity can become an end in and of itself. Um, so I think the question isn't really a sort of a choice between um, a politics that's prefigurative or a politics that's not, it's, it's like how much prefiguration Right. How do you get that kind of balance right? But that's, again, one of those cases where I think we need to, like, not be nostalgic. Right. So not just, um, you know, wax lyrical about the days of, of, um, you know, separatist groups where women just spent time like in each other's company and practicing karate, uh, which they which they did. I mean, another problem, of course, with that specific separatist form was the way in which it was very exclusionary of, of women of colour, black women, especially in the US and in the UK, who always repeatedly from the very beginning made the point that, um, you know, they couldn't be separatists because they were fighting at least two wars. They were fighting, you know, against men over the, over patriarchy, but they also had to fight with black men against racism. So separatism was, was a, a was a practice that presupposed a kind of um, post-racial politics.
1: Yes. And you speak in the book about the the um the liberal fear of the authoritarian um sexual um control which to some degree was practiced by separatist groups and yet at the same time there was um a sort of opting out there and I think um for younger women and feminists today and for queer people non-binary people there is a Uh, I think a rightful demand to explore their sexuality and identity Mm. in a social field that isn't separate. Mm. Um, That seems to me valid. Do you Mm. think that is now part of the language?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. At the same time, like I noticed with my students, a kind of pull to a certain kind of separatism. I mean, not that they might you know, not that the classroom can be a fully separatist space, but you can see within, um, especially the young women who take my feminism classes, and it usually still is young women, um, that there's a kind of yearning for, that, that you know, that feeling that consciousness raising groups used to give you, that feeling of like likeness and similarity. Um, Commonality of experience that you're all going to be disclosing and articulating together and collectively moving towards, um, you know, a different form of politics, and that it, and and so there is a kind of prefigurative energy there, um, and it can't last, and I don't think it it should it should last. Um, so yeah, while well, I think you're right that um, overall, kind of young people today, as it were, are have in some sense are less. Um, inclined to those kind of experiments you know I think there is still that that certain kind of instinct that we see and maybe the reason that they're less inclined towards those experiments is just because of austerity right there're just kind yeah. of economic reasons why um, people can't just uh, you know take over houses and buy them cheaply and make them into communes and
1: now a pandemic also, Um, I'm aware, as you say in the book, that we've kind of um, limited our own discussion to the US and the UK and your students come from a um, you know, a particular subset of society too. But if there are questions that speak to other parts of the world, we'd be really interested to have them. Um, there's one from Sigrid, which I think is fascinating and gets onto something we, we didn't have time for, She says, could you speak about the anger, which I think is often present in sexual politics, for example, in the Me Too movement, as well as in the oppositions to it? I mean, you have a fantastic essay called The Aptness of Anger, which isn't in the book, but I think at some level is responding to Audre Lorde, Mm. the uses of anger. So what do we do with anger?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's such a tough question. I mean, in that that essay, um, it's an academic essay, but, um, you know, I'm... I'm trying to respond to a very kind of common form of political critique, which says that anger is counterproductive for um, victims of injustice. So, you know, you shouldn't get angry because it's just, um, you know, pushing a knife into your own heart, right? And instead, you should like be civil and find more productive ways of engaging. Now, one thing to say is that I think, empirically speaking, that's not that's not always true, right? Sometimes anger can be hugely efficacious and motivating and, and that's part of Audrey Lorde's point. Um, but what I also want to say is, well, sometimes it might be counterproductive, but it's still a way of sort of emotionally registering mm. oppression, right? Um, and, and, and it's a way of kind of emotionally telling the truth about the world. And that means that vict- certain victims of um, oppression Um, certain, you know, will sometimes be in a position where they have a kind of invidious choice to make between, um, you know, making themselves better off and emotionally registering, like, the reality that they're they're facing. I mean, I think there are very specific questions about how we deal with the anger um, that we see mobilized by Me Too and tapped into by Me Too. One thing that concerns me greatly is when that anger is Channeled into a like carceral impulse. Um, that's not unique to me too. I mean, we started seeing that um, especially in, in the US um, from the kind of 80s onwards. I mean, it's really interesting that a group like the New York Radical Feminists, early consciousness raising group, um, you know, very concerned about rape, wrote, you know, this very important historic handbook on rape. But, you know, they said, and they they wanted to say rape is a very serious political issue, but you know, it's not an issue where we should be like calling on the power of the carceral state, right? It's a revolutionary issue. To address rape, we need to like rethink the family. We need to think rethink gender relations. Really, you know, we need to rethink economics. Um, it's not just about prisons and police. Um, now, in a country like the US and increasingly like a country in the UK, where the only um, ah, levers at women's disposal often feel like, you know, the police and and prisons, and I don't mean that um, one has really much success going to the police or getting convictions, but rather that insofar as you're engaged in feminist activism, it seems like the obvious thing to do is to demand more police because that's something that political parties are responsive to, right? Um, Because actually all political parties really fundamentally like the police and they like prisons, right? Because the carceral system is um, unthreatening To and a mask for deep economic inequalities, right? So as long as we can just have the remedy of more police on the street, more men in prison, we don't have to deal with the fact that, for example, um, domestic violence is very strongly correlated with male unemployment, or that mandatory arrest laws um, in the cases of domestic violence lead to greater retaliation um, against victims of domestic violence.
1: That's right. I think... um you wrote about this in the FT recently, Um, the response to the murder of Sarah Everard was extremely troubling Mm -hmm. because of this instinct among large numbers of people who were horrified, rightly horrified by the events, to call on the government to better protect women. And there've been some good critiques of Reclaim the Night and other movements that um, divert our attention away from the fact that women continue to be most in danger in the home, not walking down a dark street, that policemen are more likely than the average male member of society to engage in domestic violence and so on, so um, that, as you say, it's a remarkably prescient document. Um, Let me come back to another question. Okay, Lawrence asks um, whether you have a comment on pornography sex work from the perspective of labour and labour rights. Um, notably as today, only fans have announced they intend to exclude nudity from their platform. Um, well, one of the very interesting things you talk about in the book is the huge increase in cam girls and guys yeah. during the pandemic. During the pandemic.
2: Yeah. I mean, right, so you have these... Um, yeah, I mean, from a labor perspective, um, the I mean, in general, uh, sex work is um, in in most in in most um, countries uh, are just like totally disenfranchised, right? Even more than laborers in um, in, in other industries. Um, so that's you know obvious in the case where sex work is criminalized or partially criminalized or just sort of quasi-legalized as it is in, in the, um, I, I'm talking about prostitution specifically, mm. in the UK. In the case of um, pornography, so camming is something that lots of sex workers prefer to do because they don't have to um, you know, be in the same room as a potentially violent John. Right, um, and they can exercise much more control. At the same time, who owns the camming sites? Just as who owns the internet, at uh, the porn sites? They're not sex workers themselves, right? These aren't um, you know uh, coalitions of sex workers who create these sites. They have to basically sell their labor. A huge cut is taken. Um, <laughs> it, it was an extraordinary thing. Um, I think it was the camming site is my girl um, when the pandemic it offered laid off McDonald's workers in the U.S. the opportunity to like take to um, to have a, a higher uh, um, be able to take more of the, their revenue that they, they generated. Um, but then, of course, then campsites do things like uh, get rid of get, uh, you know, get rid of uh, nudity because they basically have a publicity problem, right? Um, I mean, this just goes to show why these sites ultimately just need to be in the hands of sex workers themselves. And I think that is um, the, the biggest, um, I mean, I think that would be one of the most extraordinary things that that could be done. But it's very hard. I mean, there are these tech monopolies um, and it's very hard to set up and create these alternatives. You know, you need a huge amount of resources to do that. And then I'm pretty sure that the moment sex workers were able to do that, they would just be shut down um, by the state. Um, So yeah, just extraordinary um, labor issues. And then of course, part of what's driving the movement to campsites is the diminished margins um, in the in traditional pornography, which have resulted in massively slashed wages for the women who work in, uh, who work in traditional So porn.
1: that they're even more precarious exactly. and forced into you know, positions of even less agency. Thank you. Um, there's a question here from Bryony who says, um, reading the book, I think, um, I was thinking about Fanon and his idea that the white gaze fixes blackness mm-hmm. and how this in more recent critiques doesn't give space for those subjects to return or subvert the racializing or gendering gaze. Um, so for those who are subject to the violent racializing and gender, gendering politics of desire, is there space to refuse the demands of such violent legibility or how can such subjects return to or refuse these gazes that they are shaped by and therefore subvert, resist or disavow them?
2: Yeah, great question. I mean, it, it makes me think of um, the black feminist uh, academic Jennifer Nash, uh, who has a fantastic book on, on kind of revisiting uh, the porn debates and thinking about the place of black women in pornography. So um, lots of sort of black, lots of black feminists historically have been very anti-porn um, like Patricia Hill Collins, Alice Walker, um, because they see, you know, the, the doubled uh, subordination of black women and pornography. So it's not just um, a, a gendered subordination, but also a racialized one. Um, and they often trace the figure of like the pornographic subject to enslaved black women's bodies. Um, and Jennifer Nash wants to um, and she you know she argues very forcefully um, that well, that might that might all be right, but at the same time, there can be something salutary, if not totally liberating um, in being someone being a member of a group that um, has been sexualized in a very particular way, right, been sort of um, over-sexualized while at the same time being coded as not worthy of the kind of sexual, of of a sexual gaze, right, so not a high status sexual gaze. Um, There might be something salutary in being presented as a kind of worthy sexual object within a kind of pornographic frame. Um, And so she thinks that there's something subversive subversive there. So uh, the legal philosopher Les Green makes a kind of similar argument about mainstream gay male porn right he says that for gay men for whom like not being sexually desirable in in kind of a broadly straight culture is a kind of leitmotif experience that can be something kind of salutary about um being objectified in in pornography so i think there are those possibilities mm-hmm. there i mean the one thing i would say is that it's it's important in those cases to not kind of confuse um Are not run together, those forms of um, resistance and accommodation that we can find under oppressive conditions with the conditions of freedom themselves. And I think we sometimes are at risk of running those two things together in a kind of, when we engage in a very sort of simplistic sex positivism.
1: One of the things I really appreciate about the book is not only the counterfactuals you offer, so in this case, would porn be better if black women weren't there? I mean, that's right. obviously not the case. But also that you you shift us to a different position. So let's look at who's holding the camera. Mm. Let's look at who owns the site on which these people make their money and who controls the money. Um, so let's go back to the questions. Um, Laura says, what do you make of the contention in incel discourse that because sex is more evenly distributed among women than men, it is in fact men who suffer more from sexual marginalization?
2: Yeah, I mean, the sociology I've read on this just suggests that that's not true. Um, The number of men, I think, in the U.S. who have more than 10 sexual partners um, in a year it's like 0.8% uh, you know the, the typical chad and that the the percentage of of the percentage of people who are genuinely involuntary celibates um, they're the the majority are women right what's really interesting about mm-hmm. incels is that um, they tend not to recognize the e- the existence of incel women ironic of course because the the notion of the incel was coined by a woman herself who was um, very lonely, uh, couldn't find a relationship, and created a support group uh, for people like her. Um, and now, of course, the discourse is there are no such no such women.
1: The idea being that almost any woman could find a man who wanted right. to
2: fuck her, right? We right. talk
1: about fuckability in the book, yeah. and that's irrelevant when it comes to women because they aren't agents with their own desires. Exactly.
2: And what's also very interesting is that, you know, so, One thing that incel women complain about on chat groups, and it's really interesting spending time on those specific chat groups, is the way that, um, well, they often claim that incel men aren't really incels because they're like, look, these men only want to have sex with a very particular kind of woman, like an alpha female, right, that they think will accrue to them a kind of social status that they currently lack. They're not actually interested in shy women or socially awkward women or women who aren't just like conventionally attractive, right? Um, so they're not actually interested in forming human connections or like overcoming loneliness. What they're interested in is, is status. Um, so I think the basically that whole picture is um, is wrong both descriptively but also there's uh, but also normatively there's a kind of hidden um, a hidden ideology at work there.
1: This is just a supplementary question but does the word marginalization help us in these in this discourse?
2: Right so I think marginalization is a notion that should be, Tied to a certain kind of structural practice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that all, I mean, so I don't think that's really going on in the case of incels, right? I don't think that these are, um, I mean, I'm not, so what I certainly don't want to to deny is that there are some men who, because of oppressive social um, forces like racism or ableism, are sexually marginalized and romantically marginalized, I think. Very clearly are, but I don't think the class of like incel men uh, constitute one of those one of those groups.
1: There's a question here which is anonymous. Um, how does one speak with any degree of complexity about gender dynamics in the South when the white gaze, which is the primary audience of scholarship, one-dimensionalizes, e.g., Afghan men versus women, the brown men against the brown woman.
2: Mm. Um. Yes, it's so difficult. I mean, it's been so, uh, I mean, everything about the news coming out of Afghanistan is obviously um, uh, horrific, but almost equally horrific has been the kind of uh, the response um, among lots of like mainstream commentators and people on Twitter. And one of the tropes that I think is ugliest is the one that, um, you know, looks at these photographs of, you know, Afghan men attempting to escape and basically accuses them of like not caring about uh, Afghan women. And kind of implying that I think by, I think the implication there as well, basically all Afghan men are the Taliban, right? Um, and, and so of course that, that has an exculpatory function as well, right? Of course, it's fine for the Taliban to have taken, taken over again. Um, the only victims here. Are women and children. And of course, the children are only victims, you know, until they start getting old enough where they might like, you know, grow a beard. and Right. Um, and that's, that's profoundly, um, profoundly pernicious. Uh, I mean, you saw something similar with, um, uh, you know, the the horrific uh, gang rape of Jyoti Singh in in India um, some years ago and some of the mainstream British commentariat, you know, just had to say, well, of course um, this happened because men in India are like hyenas, right? This is actual quotation from Mm -hmm. Libby Purvis. Um, And I mean, the, the first question to always ask, this is the Angela Davis question, is like, well, if Indian men are hyenas, then like what does that make Indian Women, um, the. But this is also part of the reason why, in general, of feminism that wants to um, have this totally dichotomous understanding of sexual relations and wants to see women in ev- as in every way the victim and men as in every way um, uh, the perpetrator is is will never sustain a good racial politics. And that's why we should be cautious of that narrative, even when we're not talking, even when we're confined to the global north or even when we're confined to, uh, you know, white people. Uh, because that does, I think, inevitably spill over into um, a really dangerous kind of way of talking about um, the relations between women and men.
1: That's right. It's been striking this past week, even just to, um, just to see how very how completely wedded the mainstream media is here and in the States um, to the notion that Afghan women need rescuing.
2: I mean, Laura Bush said this, right? I mean, on the 2001 invasion, she said, um, you know, the war against terrorism is also a war for women.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm just going to end with one particular question, which I think is something which would be the start of another fantastic discussion. Flora says, you write about sexual power dynamics from within an academic context. Is there anything specific to the sexual abuses that occur within that culture, one that is able to intellectualize its desire and invoke a tradition of education being eroticized? And if I could just add a little question of my own to mm. that, you write wonderfully in the book about the loss of education mm. that can be a consequence of sexual relationships between teachers and students. Um, I was also curious, but I tend to Flora first, um, the effect on the other students mm. of those relationships.
2: Right. So I have an essay in the book that we haven't really spoken about, um, about uh, teacher-student relationships in the, in the university context. Um, so one thing that's interesting about those, those relationships, is, I mean, sort of the, the, the justification of those relationships tends to go one way or the other. Right. So it's either under intellectualized. Right. Um, so you'll hear lots of people saying, well, it's consensual, so it's fine. Right. So all of a sudden you have philosophers who are, you know, incredibly nimble (laughs) at making very sophisticated normative arguments for all sorts of things that are just obviously wrong, you know, like torture, unable to say anything more interesting about teacher-student relationships um, apart from, well, if they're consensual, they're okay. So that's a kind of under-intellectualizing. And then there's an over-intellectualizing, which um, or the wrong kind of intellectualizing that I think uh, Flora is pointing to. So... Academics who correctly observe, um, and, and you know, this is to participate in a tradition that you know has a very long history, it begins with at least with Plato. Correctly observe that the pedagogical relationship, when it goes well, um, involves eros, right? So it involves the instigation of desire in the student, and they take that as. Um, a justification for, as they see it, the kind of natural channeling of that desire into a sexual and romantic relationship. So Jane Gallup, um, famously the, the um, in her book, Feminist Accused of Sexual Harassment, you know, defends the fact that she slept with many of her undergraduates and graduate students um, in precisely those terms. So she says, like, teaching isn't this erotic enterprise. So if you're going to prohibit um, consensual amorous relations, then you're going to be prohibiting teaching itself, uh, and so it's extraordinary how widespread um, that justification is. I think the fatal misstep is to think that just because there's something, there can be something erotic or charged in the pedagogical context, um, that uh, that means it should lead to uh, sex, right? Um, in fact, to just stick with Plato, you know, Plato would suggest the opposite is true. What you do, what's the proper role of the teacher is to take on those erotic energies and channel them towards, you know, Plato would say the form of the true and the beautiful and the good. Um, but I think we don't have to be a full Platonist to think that, you know, there's something that we're trying to do in the classroom. Um, and we're trying to, and, and that requires, as a matter of the pr- matter of the practice we're engaged with, uh, a particular kind of responsiveness uh, to that eros, not in kind, but by by a kind of rechanneling. Um, yeah, so I do think that, especially in the case of Jane Gallup, you do see. Um, a certain set of intellectual tendencies and, and an ability to invoke various authorities like Plato or Freud, misinvoke them, um, being mobilized to justify what I think are actually just quite damage, usually damaging uh, practices.
1: You put it very well in the book, and I'll, I'll have to paraphrase you, but the point of education isn't sex. Mm. And so therefore, the erotic character of The interchanges between, the exchanges between the student and the teacher are not leading to that endpoint, Or they shouldn't be. Or they shouldn't be. Um, Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop for this evening. Um, That question ended us on the thorny issue of consent and why consent is not always enough, but we'll have to come back to that in another conversation. Um, Thank you all very much for joining us. Um, Hope to see you again.
2: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk
0: forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.